I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 17 into chapter 3 this morning. While you're doing that, I want to uh, mention something that we're going to be trying in the weeks ahead. I know that going through the book of Romans can raise questions in your mind as we study and talk about some of these things. And uh, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is you can send me an email if you have a question, or you can, uh, the address is on the back of the bulletin there for my email address, or you can send it to the church office too and it will be forwarded to me. And I'll try and answer those. And what we're going to do is on November 23rd, we're going to have the first of what may be a few Q&A times. If there are good questions that are asked that others may have as well, we'll pick out some of those and we're going to try and answer those questions uh, before the message on a given week that we've picked out as it works in the worship. Uh, For example, last week when we had this sketch about coming before the throne and Jesus will one day separate those who come before him based on how they treated the least of these, Uh, Somebody asked the question last week, well, does that teach that salvation is by works then? And those of you who know your Bibles know that that particular sketch was based on the passage in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where Jesus talks about whatever we do for one of the least of these, my brothers, we've done for him. And it seems like there are these three things that he is looking at. You know, did we feed him? Did we give him something to drink? Did we clothe him? Now, how is it that in the Scripture it makes it very clear that we are saved by faith and yet you have these judgment scenes that seem to be based upon works? And again, that's something that people sometimes struggle putting together, but it is very clear in Scripture. And you even see them back to back. For example, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Nobody's going to be in heaven saying, I did this or that or these kind of things to get there. Nobody. It's all by grace. It's all by faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And yet in that very same passage, in the very next verse, it also says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved to do good works. Faith and works go together. The works are the proof of a changed life or change of a heart that's taken place because of what Christ has done in us. So again, it comes back to if we truly do love God and have been saved by His grace, we are going to care about the least of these, our brothers. Whether it's in ministries like missionary evangelism to corrections here, or concern for support and praying for missionaries that we send overseas, or our own work of benevolence that we are doing through our church. We're going to care about one another, and Jesus is going to see that and reward that one day. So when we hear a sketch, one of the reasons we use sketches is they don't tell the whole story. They're designed to make us think. And if that raises questions in your mind and gets you to think and dig deeper in the Scripture, then a sketch has accomplished its point. Today we're going to pick up on some things, too, that I think are very important for us as believers to understand uh, when we look at uh, this particular topic of, is there hope for the religious? And I want us to see what Paul has to say. Let me read for us uh, in chapter 2, verses 17 through the end of the chapter to begin with. Paul writes, 
Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. And such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. Father, as we think about your holy word again this morning, would you help us to hear it very carefully and to see how it applies to our life or our circumstances and the world in which we live, that we might have faith in you and live in such a way that pleases you. We ask it in your name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by making a statement that may again surprise you. A few months ago I had said that worship can be dangerous when we come into the presence of a holy God. Well, I want to say this morning that growing up in a church can also be dangerous. And what do I mean by that? I'm not saying that going to church is bad, that should be obvious, or that we shouldn't be here on Sunday mornings, or that anyone should stop going. It's just that sometimes going to church can be just like getting a vaccination. We can have just enough religion to keep us from getting the real thing. And that's okay when it comes to getting a flu shot, you know, where they introduce a little bit of the virus to keep you from getting the real thing. But it's not okay with our faith. And sadly, it is possible for people to go to church to participate in the activities and still not have a true relationship with God. That's what Paul is addressing here when he talked to the Jews about the privileges that they had, and yet their heart was far from God. And sometimes you look at that on the outside and you go, how could that be? I mean, they had all of these things that should have been so clear to them. Why was it that some missed it? Sadly, the same thing can happen in the church. That people can participate in all of the activities and things that are going on and not have a genuine relationship with God. And what Paul identifies in this passage are four dangers that can keep us from having a saving faith. I want to thank uh, Stuart Briscoe for the ideas for the main points of this outline. I thought as I was studying this week that he really nailed it. Uh, Pastor Briscoe is at the Elmbrook Church in Milwaukee, and I know many of you have heard of him. 
But in this passage, some of the dangers we see are these. Number one, that there is the danger of profession without possession. And we see it in verses 17 to 24. I want you to think about how Paul described the Jews here. He said, for example, that they were proud of the name Jew. The name Jew comes from the tribe of Judah. It means praise. And they were a people who were made to praise God and to give Him glory. And they were proud of their ethnic background. Just like you and I may be proud of being an American or perhaps our ethnic background beyond that where our parents or grandparents or ancestors came from. They relied on the law. They knew that they had been given the law through Moses and that was a great privilege. They had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament that were so special to them in their tradition. They bragged about their relationship with God as being God's chosen people. They knew God's will that was given in the Scriptures. They believed that they were superior in wisdom because of it. And they considered themselves to be a guide to the blind or a light to those who were in darkness. Bottom line, they thought they were the best. They were God's favorite, chosen by Him. And everybody else was second class. And how did Paul know that? Well, it's because he himself as a Jew once felt that way. In fact, if you look at his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, he even out tries to outdo his brothers when he says, you know, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, and I'm named after Saul, Israel's first king, and I'm a Pharisee, and I'm just, you know, he's just climbing the rungs of that ladder to make himself as good as he can possibly be. But what did he say in Philippians chapter 3? He said that when he came to meet Christ, he realized that all of that was just rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And there are many people who get hung up on those things, of trying to climb this ladder to attain God's favor. And what Paul is making clear here is that that doesn't mean a thing. Paul asked them to think about these questions. You know, when he asked a series of questions here, and he said, you know, you who think that you are an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of infants... Uh, Do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you break the law? What he was asking them were questions just like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. When he would talk to people in that day who thought, you know, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus would say, have you ever had lust in your heart toward someone else? Or people would say, I've never stolen anything. And Jesus would say, have you ever coveted? Or they'd say, I've never murdered anyone. And Jesus would say, have you ever been angry toward a brother or sister so much that you wanted to strike them or wish them ill? All of those things are in the same line. It's all sin. And it shows that even we who are religious, we who have these privileges, stand in need of a Savior. Sometimes the sin of the Jewish people was so shocking and public that God's name was blasphemed among the Gentiles. You know, they'd look at the Jewish people and their conduct or how they had turned away from God and their worship of idols and the immorality that was there among them. At times it was seen in their history and they'd say, if 
If that's what God's like, I don't want anything to do with Him. They professed to know the truth without possessing the truth. And Jesus would say of them, quoting Isaiah the prophet, that these people honor me with their lips, but their heart, their hearts are far from me. Well, let me ask, is that a danger today? Yes, it can be, can't it? You know, there are times when people can be so proud of their religious background and you can ask them, you know, about their faith and they will identify themselves and they'll say, you know, I'm a Lutheran or I'm Catholic or I'm E.V. Free or I'm Baptist or I'm Methodist, whatever it might be. And people put great stock in that sometimes as though that's the reason that they're saved or they're in. It's based upon who they're aligned with. That's not what God's going to look at. And how many people today in our country have been turned off by uh, the clergy scandals, for example? Whenever a pastor or a priest sins, it's devastating. Not just to that local congregation, but to all who hear about it. And in America, with the uh, child abuse and the sexual immorality or pornography or all those kind of things that have come out even in the lives of clergy, it's shocking. And there are people in our country who say, well, if that's what being a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with it. And how about when a church splits, when lay people don't get along, or there's a fight in the church and becomes known in a community? You know, there are times when the reputation of churches has been destroyed in a community because of what went on and how they treated one another in such a mean spirit, or they couldn't forgive, or they couldn't get along and work things out. And the reputation goes outside of the church and people want nothing to do with it. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's asking the question, does our walk match our talk? We are not perfect. We won't be this side of heaven. But are we growing in our relationship with Christ? And have we been genuinely converted? Or are we just giving God some sort of lip service? That's the challenge in this passage. To let our light shine and live in such a way that others can see that Jesus has changed us from the inside out. There is the danger of professing the truth without possessing it. And secondly, there is the danger of ritual without reality. In verses 25 to 29, Paul will go on to talk about circumcision. And I imagine those who heard Paul of that Jewish audience really felt like Paul was stepping on some toes now. I mean, he just started to talk about something that was very important to the Jewish people. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It went back even before the law was given. It was a covenant of faith and trust in God. And here was this sign that was given to them that was sacred. It was to mark them as different in the world. And every Jewish male needed to be circumcised or they would be cut off from God. Well, what began to happen as that tradition was carried forward is that at least some of them, if not all of them, began to believe that circumcision ensured salvation. And there were these writings among their rabbis and others who made comments like this. Rabbi Menachem said, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. The Midrash Talim said that God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. You've been circumcised, 
you're good. That's it. And yet what does God say? God says that the circumcision that really matters is of the heart. It's not of the flesh. And even in the Old Testament, you can go back to Deuteronomy or you can look at Jeremiah and you can look at others, God said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. It's not the circumcision of the flesh that is important. It's the circumcision of our heart. The giving of ourselves wholly to God where we live in a different way. You see, circumcision was an outward sign of what was to be an inward spiritual reality. And again, people get that confused and they struggle with that. For example, if you were to ask people about baptism today, some people think that if they've been baptized, whether as an infant or as an adult, that that means that they're saved. And it's automatic. that They're going to go to heaven. I mean, that the case is closed, right? Well, not necessarily. In 1 Peter 3.21, when Peter says that baptism now saves you, he goes on to explain what he means. That it is not the removal of dirt from the body. It's the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that physical water that saves someone. It's not kind of being cleansed on the outside by that. It's what's going on in the heart that means the most to God. And that's why, you know, if a person has gone through the ritual of baptism, but there's no evidence of change, or it wasn't sincere, or they were just making a simple profession about that, that's not automatically going to save somebody. Let me give you an example. It's been said that Jesse James, that infamous outlaw, professed to be a Christian. Though others would dispute it, and I think you might question it too after hearing some of these stories. Jesse James said that he liked Sundays, it's just that he couldn't always make it to church. In fact, on two Sundays he was out robbing trains. Well, hard to make it when you're doing that. In one bank robbery, he killed a man, and shortly after, he was baptized in the Kearney Baptist Church. In another bank robbery, he killed a bank cashier, and then he returned to sing in the church choir. Obviously, that's an extreme example, but here's an illustration of somebody who was going through all the rituals as though that would make a difference but he had no intention of following what God had to say in his life. Rituals don't save people. Faith in Jesus Christ does. And when people have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, when someone's come to know Him uh, as, as their Savior and Lord, and He has changed their life, and then they want to be baptized, oh, that's huge. That's just powerful. That's why I love in our baptism services hearing the testimonies of those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and they want to tell about that. And they want to be baptized as a sign that they have now united their life to Christ and He has saved them. When we know Jesus Christ and we come to the Lord's table and we participate in communion, that's powerful. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us when He died on the cross for our sins and we are saved by His grace. 
And we come and we thank Him for what He has done. And those elements that we partake of, the bread and the cup, remind us of His death, His body that hung on that cross and His blood that was shed for us. And it reminds us of the great price that He paid that we could be forgiven. People get those things turned around a lot. And sometimes they think that if I just go through the ritual or the ordinance, that that's good enough. That's not what God's looking for. God's looking at the heart to see what we really believe about Him. Thirdly, there is also the danger of privilege without perception. And we see that in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. Paul knows now that he has kind of taken away two things that many Jews have been trusting in. He's talked about the law, and he's talked about circumcision, and he's kind of set those things aside and said, just having those will not save you. And so he knows that some people may be asking the question, well then, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And Paul says, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. When he looked at the Jews and their privileged position, God had indeed chosen them to be a light to the nations. God had chosen through this small group of people to bring His light into the world. The Word of God, and later in His time, His Son, who was also born of the Jews, who would be that light to the nations. And so they had this privilege to hear about the plan of salvation, to understand God's promise and what He was going to do in the sending of a Savior, a Messiah. They had all of those advantages, tremendous privileges, knowledge of His will. And somehow some of those people missed it. You know, nobody else had at that time what they did. Nobody else had the Scriptures And they were called to share that good news with the world. We too are a privileged people. Somebody may ask in a light way, well, what advantages are growing up in a Christian home or a Christian church? I mean, what privileges have we had? Well, think about that. It is much in every way. I mean, if you've had the opportunity as you are here to grow up in a Christian family in a Christian church, Man, you've had the knowledge of the Word of God. You have had the privilege to come here to be taught, whether it's in our adult classes or classes for children and youth or sit in on the messages on Sunday morning. We have the privilege of hearing the Scriptures taught and explained. If you grew up in a Christian family where you had loving parents, what a tremendous privilege that is. You had... Parents who cared about you. Parents who sacrificed for you and who guarded you and who wanted to protect you and point you to Christ. And they loved you. It's a tremendous privilege. Within the church, you've had godly role models. I think back for me growing up, those men that were a part of the church in which I grew up that I look at and I am so thankful for their life. Their example is a role model for me. You've had the privilege of Christian friends who surrounded you and encouraged you and who were there when life was tough and they prayed for you. You've had opportunities to grow and opportunities to serve and participate in the life of the church. 
And you've had this wonderful privilege of worship and prayer to be able to come together in the freedom that we enjoy. Now, all of those things are tremendous privileges, things that one day we will be accountable for. How do we use them? They are tremendous blessings, but they will not profit at all if we don't use them and if they are not united by faith in Christ. Please don't take those privileges for granted. You know, when I talk to parents in our church, every parent's desire is for their children to have a genuine personal experience with Christ. Because we who know Christ know that that's something that we just can't automatically pass on. Everyone has to come to that point of decision themselves. What are they going to do with Jesus Christ? And it breaks our heart when there are kids who grow up in the life of the church and then walk away and say, you know what, that didn't do anything for me. I didn't get it. I didn't see any difference. And that hurts. Because those who know Christ and who love Him and have had that personal encounter with Him want that for everybody. Most of all for our kids. And that's why as parents we try to encourage and put our students in places where they can grow. That's why things like this retreat this weekend that a number of the senior high students are on are just powerful times where they can get away and be with God and hear Him speak and hear somebody else present a message or someone else lead in worship and to see other students there because we want them to get it. We want that light to go on where they have that genuine personal encounter with Jesus Christ and they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He has saved them and changed their life. Don't ever take these privileges for granted. If you are not sure about your relationship with Christ, boy, this is the time to make sure and to dig into the Scriptures and to seek Him and to ask others around you who you know to help you in that or to pray for you that you might come into that kind of personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And fourthly, there is the danger of arguing without understanding. And we see it in verses 3 to 8. Let me read it for you. Questions were being asked. Things like this. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory... Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. As Paul went from city to city and he was preaching the gospel and sharing that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, in the work that he has done, there were people who would challenge that and ask him questions. Some of those questions were kind of ridiculous at times, but Paul still sought to answer them. And they were questions like this. Some would say, well, 
What if some don't have faith? I mean, what does that say if there were Jews who did not have faith in God? Does that nullify God's faithfulness that it just didn't work? Or because there were Jews who were not following His will, does that mean that there's nothing to this? Paul would say not at all. He'd say just because some religious people are hypocrites, don't write them all off, and especially don't give up on God. He is still faithful. And so even in the church today, you know what? If you hear stories of a moral failure, somebody who blew it, somebody who disappointed even you personally, don't hold that against God. That's going to happen. There are going to be those times when people will disappoint or when things didn't go the way that we thought that they should have. Keep holding on to Him. Trust in Him. Because God is still faithful and He will not give up on you. And sometimes people will ask questions like, well, you know, if our unrighteousness, our sin, brings God's righteousness out more clearly, I mean, is God unjust in punishing us? Maybe we ought to just still do that. Isn't that a good thing? And Paul says, certainly not. Sin is still sin. God isn't delighted when His people sin or when anyone sins. And there will still be consequences for that. So you're not going to get off if you think that somehow your unrighteousness just highlights God's righteousness even more. And they took it one more step when they said, well, if my sin brings him glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? I mean, why don't I just keep on sinning? And Paul just kind of shakes his head and he says their condemnation is deserved. Translation, the answer is pretty obvious. That's not what God desires. You know, if you think about what they were arguing here, it would be kind of like a criminal who's just been arrested saying to the police, you know, if my crimes keep you employed, maybe you ought to just let me go so you can keep working. You know, there, there's kind of a logic there, but obviously it's a twisted logic. And there were people looking at their own life morally and saying, you know, well, if I keep sinning and that brings out God's glory, well, maybe I ought to just keep sinning. People will say just about anything to rationalize their sin or their behavior. But that's not honoring to God at all. If there is sin, the right thing to do is to confess it. Admit it to God and repent and turn away from it. Don't hide it. And if you are not sure about your relationship with Christ, the important thing to do is to make sure to wrestle with these things. Because I don't want anyone to have a false sense of security. To think that just because they go to church that makes them a Christian or just because they have prayed a prayer that that makes a person a Christian or just because somewhere along in the life of the church they participated in one of the ordinances that that makes us a Christian. No, what makes a person a Christian is our faith in Jesus Christ and the life that flows from that. And if we have truly been born again by the Spirit of God, there will be fruit in our life. Is there hope for the religious? Yes, if our hope is in Christ. It's not in our profession of saying a prayer. It's not in rituals. It's not just being baptized or taking communion. It is not in privileges. It's not in being born into a Christian family or attending a Christian church. 
It's not in arguments that don't stand up to the truth of God's word. Our only hope is in Christ and what he has done for us. And he invites us to humble ourselves before him, to ask for his forgiveness, and to come into our life and change us from the inside out, and he will do that. I like the story that was told about John Wesley, the evangelist. He was once asked if he thought he would see George Whitfield in heaven. George Whitfield, you know, was another great evangelist at the time uh, when our country was being formed. And Wesley was asked that question, if he thought he'd see George Whitfield in heaven because they had some differences in their theological beliefs at times. And Wesley replied by saying this. He said, oh no. George Whitfield will be so much nearer to the throne that I doubt that I will see him for a very long time. Wesley was a humble man who knew that he was saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And in that grace he would take his stand and he would live. And he was a gracious man when it came to others who knew Jesus Christ, even if at times there may be differences in what they believed. His salvation was based not in what he did, but in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, only you know our heart. Only you know what's going on on the inside and our desires. Do we truly desire to please you, or have we been just putting on a show so that externally we would look good? Father, it's time for that to stop. You want all of us to be honest and genuine and open with you. And I pray for everyone who's here this morning that if there are any doubts at all, that they would take that step, searching their own heart and confessing their sin and coming to you as Savior and Lord. Father, I want to see everybody who's a part of our church in heaven one day and to glory in your presence because of what you have done for us. And so today, here and now, we acknowledge that it's not through any merit of our own that we will be there. But it's only because of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and what he has done. Our hope is in Christ alone. Amen.